Good morning. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the pastor. And once a year, I get to change my greeting. And so, go Navy. (laughs) There's always hope next year. For those of you who are visiting and have no idea what we're doing, it has to do with the Army-Navy game. This Christmas Advent, we have um, been trying to look at peace. And um, as we've been thinking about this idea of peace that, that we hope and dream and pray for, uh, for and at Christmas... Uh, we uh, thought about it in the context, at least we began last week, of thinking of it in the context of um, one of the great English ri- uh, writers, uh, Charles uh, Dickens. If you don't know the, the, the novelist, he's the, uh, writ- dr- written uh, during the Victorian era of England. He uh, grew up in... in um, a fairly middle class until he's about 12 years old and, and his dad uh, lost their family fortune. And because of that, at 12 years old, everybody had to go to work in order to support the family. And so he went to work in factories, as a lot of kids did. And, and, and in those days, they didn't have labor laws like we do today. And so they worked all day, seven days a week. And so he stopped going to church. The whole family stopped going to church. But he never forgot... Uh, some of the things that he learned in church. And so when he began to write his novels, one uh, novel, uh, Oliver Twist, you know, the, the kid who lives on the streets and, and life is transformed by a family who um, uh, takes him from being an orphan into uh, the family. And then um, uh, this one that we've been looking at with Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, uh, A Christmas Carol. This idea of life transformation is in most of Charles Dickens' work. And so he takes this, a pitiful, old, uh, uh, penny-pitching, gruff, lonely man and gives him three visits on Christmas Eve, uh, one uh, by uh, the Christmas past, one by the Christmas present, and one by the Christmas yet to come. And by these uh, uh, visits, in one day, this man is transformed into something beautiful, something good, something that people want to be around as opposed to be repelled by. And so what we have tried to do with these messages on peace is to look at peace that has come from us, uh, come from the past. And what we looked at last week was Luke 2, and specifically what the angels said at the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. Glory uh, to God in the highest, and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And that word uh, pleased means to have favor or to uh, give grace. And so to those whom God is, is, has given favor, he, Jesus came or was born to bring peace to. And for them, 
That's the peace on earth. And the way that uh, Charles Wesley gets out of it and Hark the Herald Angels Sing is that line where he, he says, a peace on earth, good will toward men, uh, God and sinners reconciled. That is, Jesus was born to reconcile us uh, to himself through Jesus Christ as our substitute. He took our place. He, he got what we deserved and, and, and we got what he had earned as ours. And that reconciled us uh, to God. And so that's what we uh, looked at last week is that when the scripture talks about a peace on earth, he's not talking about peace everywhere. He's talking about peace in the hearts of his people that Jesus came to bring. Now, this morning's text, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, seems to be contradictory. Because he's going to talk about peace again, but he's going to talk about the sword. So let me read uh, Matthew 10. Uh, It's just uh, verse 34 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Notice he said peace to the earth instead of on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. May God help us to understand this, his word. One of the things that we notice, those of us who are children or parents, and that's all of us in this room, we notice that there are similarities with our parents. And I don't know if you uh, have noticed that, if you see that in my children. There are mannerisms that I have. There There are things about the way I look that are in my children. It's even all the way down into the grandchildren. Some of that's DNA, and some of that is just life learned. And, and that's just the way it is. We think that's either cute and, or not, depending on who's talking. But there's a way in which all of us, humanity, are like our first parents. What do I mean by that is, is that... Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were given a lot. God had set them up in life. He, he, he said, let us make them in our image. Talking about God says that when he created a mankind, both male and female, he created them in his image. He didn't say that about any other creature in the whole cosmos, not just here, but anywhere. He did not make anyone else in his image but us. And then he said, I I tell you what I want you to do. This great world that I have made for you to live in, I want you to multiply and fill it. I want you to subdue it. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to rule over it on my behalf. So he didn't come in and say, you're my slaves. You're going to do drudgery. You're going to make bricks out of straw. I want you to come here and I want you to make more image bearers. And I want you to rule over it. I want you to subdue it. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to be creative. And then he builds them a garden, a home made out of a garden to live in. 
And it says in the cool of the day, God walked with them. God came and had fellowship with them. Man, he gave them a lot of good things. But one of the things that we learn real quickly is that God is not enough for them. Because the very first thing they do when God is not enough is they begin to do the very thing God said don't do. They weren't satisfied with all that God had given them. And because of that, that dissatisfaction, that discontent, that peacelessness has been passed down to every generation to our very own. And every human being on the face of the planet shares this in common with each other. We are not satisfied with what God has given us. We're not at peace. We're not content. And so that's why Jesus had to come. Because we weren't. And I can really resonate with that. Can't you? This feeling of discontent or feeling of, uh, of restlessness or this feeling of dissatisfaction with all that we have. The reason I'm not satisfied or content or at peace is because every day I put something else before Jesus. It doesn't happen every day or all day, but it does happen frequently enough. More than I would like to admit, Jesus is not enough sometimes, and I want more. And so I try to find satisfaction and contentment and peace and other things somewhere else. Our text tells us this is why Jesus had to come. He had to come and rescue us from ourselves. This is why he came. And so our text first tells us this, that Jesus is far more disruptive in our lives than we want him to be. We, we love the hippie Jesus, the Jesus that has long hair, he's mild-mannered, he's laid back, he talks about peace and love and, 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 and uh, uh, no war, he's the one that talks about how we can just all get along. He talks about taking care of the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And we love all of that about our Jesus. But it seems in contradictory to our text in front of us. Listen to verses 34 and 35 again. He, he sounds so disruptive. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. What we fail to understand is that Jesus came here not to make peace here, but literally to initiate a war. To bring about a battle, a spiritual battle. A spiritual battle to win us back, to save our souls. In the fact, the, the way that Luke chapter 4 says it, he says, this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set the ca- liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And that message is divisive. We don't think it sounds that way. We sound, it almost sounds heroic, but he's talking about us. He's talking about us being enslaved. He's talking about us being blind. He's talking about us being the oppressed. And so some people receive that and that's good news. But other people hear that and they think, I'm not enslaved. I'm not, I'm not struggling. I don't need a savior. I'm doing pretty good. And so it creates divisions between mothers and, and, and daughters and fathers and sons and, and between brothers and sisters because some believe and, and some don't. The, the issue is that they just don't know they're captive. And because of that, it's, it's, it's disruptive personally that, that do I depend upon Jesus for everything? And, and when I'm depending on other things, sometimes he has to disrupt that just to recognize that we've been dependent on other things. And we've put other things before him. I think there's a lesson from uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia that would help us here. And, and it's when uh, Lucy first finds out that Aslan is a lion. And when she finds out, she, uh, she asks Mr. Beaver this question, is, is, he, is he safe? And Mr., Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is good. And you see, the disruptions that he brings into our lives to get our attentions, to get our hearts to be open to him, to be free, sometimes he has to be unsafe. But he is good. And it would be harder to face those disruptions if we didn't know he loved us deeply, profoundly, pervasively in our lives. This is what Paul's getting at right after he talked about so much about his sin when he said, my problem isn't that I, I sin, my problem is I'm a sinner and, and so who's going to save me? Not from my sins, he said, but from this body of wretchedness. He's talking about his nature. Who's, who's coming to rescue me from this? And, and then chapter 8 says, there is no therefore now, no condemnation for Christ Jesus. But we skip over the whole ending of that beautiful chapter where he talks about his love and he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus? Uh, the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. That is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are uh, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure of this, that neither principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so all of the disruptions that he has to bring into our lives to get our attentions, to get us to to recognize how much we need him, we know it's because he loves us. And neither the disruptions nor anything else in our lives can separate us from that love. They were going through genuine physical persecution when he wrote that to those Roman Christians. 
And nobody here I know is going through some physical persecution for being a Christian here. We, we might know somebody somewhere in the world that is suffering for being, but most of us go through other things. Loss of job, uh, the marriage has come to an end, the children are struggling, our health is failing. Lots and lots and lots of issues going on in our lives. But nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus And so I ask that question again, is Jesus enough? Can can I be satisfied in him alone? And if he is enough, then there's an implication, isn't there? Our text raises the implication right here. There's so many others, but this text raises one in verse 37. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's he talking about? He's not, he's not saying you've got to love, you can't love your parents, or you can't love your brothers and sisters, or you can't love your children. That would be taking it too far. He's not saying in order to be a Christian, you have to hate. What he's saying is, is that you've got to love me more. You've got to order your loves that there's one love above all other loves that define all the other loves. Your love for me and my love for you. And in fact, if you want to learn how to love others, you've got to love me. You've got to know my love because it is through knowing my love that you can love well others. As you learn how I've loved you, you can learn to love others. That's what he's getting at here is is that there has to be a prime love and a source of that love. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory puts it this way. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant to be offered a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see what he's saying, the metaphor there is that God is the sea. And everything else are just mud pies. And we're so easily pleased by playing in the mud that he's offering us the sea himself. When we talk about the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it is him he wants to give. It's for us to know his love and to know the depth and the pervasiveness and the profoundness of that love for us and to be satisfied in it. But we don't. And so that's why Jesus was born. So that he could go to a cross. And Jesus took up that cross because we keep looking elsewhere for life. Did you see the standard in this passage? It's in verse 38 and 39. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. By using the cross, he's talking about death. And he says that if you're not dying to your old self, your old nature, the way you once were before I came into your life, before I gave you this new life, 
then you're missing all of the beauty that I want you to have, all of the flourishing, all of the goodness. Because that's what it it means to be a Christian, is to die to yourself and to those old desires that keep begging you to return. They're like the siren song. And to live for Him. And He says, if you can't do that, then you really aren't worthy of me. The standard is that we live for Christ alone and not for ourselves. Now, here's the hard question that we have to ask. If we're honest, who is here brave enough to admit that they are not doing this perfectly now? Is there anybody in the room who believes that they are living this way perfectly? For Christ and not themselves. Of course we're not. If we were, Christ would not have to have come. We could have done it ourselves. The truth is we don't live out of our new identity in Christ. Because sometimes we think Jesus is not enough. And we look somewhere else for contentment. And our satisfaction and our peace. And so that's why Jesus took up his own cross. It is because we keep looking elsewhere for what only God can give. Jesus had to come to rescue us. Because we don't rest in our peace with God, we never rest in peace here in this world. Jesus was born to die for people just like us. The dissatisfied, the discontented, the restless. Even for the sin of not finding those things in Jesus. Just one more piece of good news. Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus defeated death so that we can have life. He had a resurrection. And because he did, he gives us one too. We sing a song that is... Sung well, it means a lot to me, and it has this tagline at the end. By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Every time we fall, every time we fail, we can get back up. Because our king is in the resurrecting business. There is nothing that you have done that he cannot fix and bring from death to life. We are called to abide in Christ as we walk faithfully through this life. But because we don't, he resurrects. God is a resurrecting king and he is resurrecting me and he is resurrecting you because he loves you profoundly, pervasively, passionately. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come into this place to announce to us that there is peace. But in order to bring that peace, you had to initiate a war for our souls. Humanity was so dissatisfied and discontent and not at peace that you literally had to wage war 
on your own son in order to set us free. In order that we might know about the depth and breadth and height and length of your love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I pray for anyone in this room who is doubting that reality. That you might by your spirit and your people bring to them this knowledge, this, this understanding, this comfort. That you are the resurrected king. And that you are resurrecting me. We pray in Jesus' name.